The scripture for today's reading comes from Mark 13, verses 14 through 31. The word of God speaks to us. Jesus is speaking, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And if, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. And in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be blackened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Hey guys, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Uh, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors at Frontline Church. I'm the lead pastor of our downtown congregation. It's been a minute since I've been able to be with you, so thanks for welcoming me into uh, this time of worship. Uh, great job with that reading. That was really beautiful. I might have to draft you to come to a reading for downtown. That was amazing. Super encouraging. I've decided that I want to take home a Brandon High action figure of some kind. <laughs> Just the embodiment of gospel masculinity. Power, power and authority. Hey, so, uh, so clearly from the reading today, this is going to be a tough text, and we're going to need the help of God's grace. We're going to need the Holy Spirit to come and teach us. So let's take a second and pray. I'm going to pray for you and ask you to pray for me, and then we'll dive in. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that in the midst of all the things going on in our own lives, in our own chests, in our own minds, in our own relationships the places we feel darkness and chaos and fear and anxiety, I pray that today would be a moment where in those places we would see and perceive more clearly the authority of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, the promise of Jesus. And equally in the midst of all the things going on in our world, Lord, the violence taking place in Ukraine, the political instability, the powers and the factions of this world, places of incredible hostility and evil, we pray that today we would take confidence that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. 
And we pray that you would lead us to be the kind of people that are not anxious, that are not freaking out, that are not troubled, no matter what the days bring, but people that have a hope that can only be explained in the resurrection of the dead. So would you meet us today? Would you bless us as we open your word? We thank you so much for feeding us today. That's what we need. So we pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Hey, so if you're new to our church, we've been walking through the gospel of Mark. And last week, Pastor David did a masterful job of leading us into the hardest chapter in this entire book. It's been called the Olivet Discourse, which simply means the teaching of Jesus on the Mount of Olives. And this gospel account of the Olivet Discourse and its counterparts in the other synoptic gospels, which you'll find in Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21, are hands down the hardest things in the gospels to both understand and teach. They are incredibly different. And there are a lot of different disagreements. There's a lot of interpretations. There's a lot of back and forth that goes on in the church. And yet, these texts are really important. And so today, as we dive in and we pick up where David left off last week, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get the podcast and get caught up. I I don't think you'll be totally lost jumping in today, but you're going to have to do a little extra work, so you might need to get the background. Uh, As we dive into this, I think that no conversation about the Olivet Discourse would be complete without opening with a quote from Annie Lennox from the Eurythmics. Uh, Annie Lennox said this, she said, the future hasn't happened yet and the past is gone. So I think the only moment we have is right here and now. And I try to make the best of those moments the moments that I'm in. Okay, that's actually a really good summary of the modern view of time. And, in, and at first glance, it feels not only plausible, but it feels kind of wise. Because after all, none of us can change our past, right? And none of us can control the future. So according to the philosophy of our moment, the very best that we could hope for is simply to be radically focused and radically engaged in the present. All we have is now. Okay, but there's a problem with that. And the problem with that was summed up really beautifully by Pope Francis in a sermon that he preached in 2014 in which he describes not a uniquely Roman Catholic take on time, but a uniquely Christian take on time. Listen to this counterpoint, which is so different. He says this, a Christian without memory is not a true Christian, but only halfway there. Such a man or a woman is a prisoner of the moment who doesn't know how to treasure his or her history, doesn't know how to read it and live it as salvation history. Okay, that's a fascinating and beautiful different view of time. What Pope Francis is saying is that to be a human being and to be divorced from the redemptive works of God in the past and to be a human being without a grid for the promises of God that frame up the future doesn't lead to living your best life now in the present. It leads to us being like a ship in the ocean without an anchor and without a rudder. It leads to the formation of a plastic identity, an identity that's constantly shifting, an identity that's always trying to reflect back to people what they want you to be, an identity that's constantly anxious and afraid and trying to create your own reality in the present as if you were God. And what Francis is saying 
is simply what Jesus is doing as our Lord and Savior in Matthew chapter, excuse me, in Mark chapter 13. What Jesus is doing for his early disciples is he's reminding them in the midst of a chaotic present. A present with temptation, a present with all kinds of difficulties and warfare and persecution. To actually in the present have their lives rooted and grounded in the work of God in the past. The promises that God made and the promises that he kept. The ways in which he pursued them and rescued them and met them. And then he's inviting them to not only have a tether to the past in the present, but to also trust Jesus that what he says about the future is going to happen. Now, our interpretation of this text is a little bit different as we're going to see today. Because the parts of this text that were future for them are many parts of this text that are now past for us. But the principle is still the same. To navigate this world, to navigate marriage and singleness and bodies that get sick and old and relationships that come and go and economies that rise and fall, as the people of God, we are the people who have a past in which God moved. And we have a present in which God is faithful and he's here. And we have a future which is sure because God's promised to meet us there. So take your Bible. We're going to walk through this together. Last week, at the beginning of the discourse, Jesus made a shocking statement and a prophetic exit. Uh, He's in the temple. He leaves the temple, and he doesn't just walk out of the temple. He, in prophetic rebuttal against the apostasy of the temple, leaves the temple never to return again, goes up on the Mount of Olives. His disciples, who were framed by a Jewish worldview that saw the temple as the center of what God was doing in creation, were absolutely scandalized as Jesus pointed out the buildings which were glorious, some of the most beautiful in the ancient world, and Jesus said to them that not one stone would be left on another that would not be torn down. And the disciples in that moment are literally spinning. As Jewish men in the first century, the temple was the place of God's presence. It was the place of prayer. It was the place of sacrifice. It was the heart of Jewish identity. It was the source of national pride that all Jewish men experienced. And now Jesus looks at his friends and he says, all this is going to be done. It's going to be dismantled. It will be completely razed to the ground. And the disciples are like, in awe and in wonder and in fear, asking Jesus questions. They say to Jesus, how will we know that this is about to take place and when will it happen? And then Jesus, through the rest of this discourse, begins to engage his disciples and talk about when these things will take place. Now let's pick up. I want to show you a few things from our text today. We're going to look at some really difficult really difficult lines that Jesus teaches, and we're going to do our best to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So number one, I want you to see the abomination of desolation, which sounds like an incredible name for a metal band. (laughs) The abomination of desolation. So here's what Jesus did last week. Uh, The disciples say, when is this going to happen, and how will we know it's about to happen? And Jesus begins to unpack for them what he describes as the beginning of birth pangs. He says, these are things which are going to happen before the temple's destroyed, but don't panic, don't freak out. It's not yet going to happen. And then Jesus walks his disciples through false messiahs that will arrive. He teaches them about the reality of persecution before the destruction of the temple. He explains to them that the gospel is going to spread throughout the known Roman world before the destruction of the temple. 
And now Jesus is going to pick up and he's going to move from birth pangs to the main event. Here's what he says. Look at verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The abomination of desolation, or literally in the Greek, the abomination that causes desolation is Jesus referring to the Old Testament concept of a moment of blasphemous idolatry that would have been the source of hatred and revulsion to Jewish people. It would have been something so over the top, such an affront to the true worship of God, something so heinous in its sacrilegious blasphemy that it would have been shocking and overwhelming. And when Jesus says, let the reader understand, he's pointing back very specifically to the prophet Daniel. Because the prophet Daniel is the one that God revealed to that there would be a day in which the abomination of desolation would take place in the temple. And this means a couple of things at first reading. The first thing is that Daniel prophesied the abomination of desolation or this moment of blasphemy. And that moment of blasphemy was fulfilled in 168 B.C., when Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar to Zeus. It was an absolute affront to the glory of God and to the sanctity of the temple. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, hey, listen, when you see a similar kind of blasphemous, horrible, abhorrent thing take place in the temple, when you see something that should not be happening in the temple of God, know that the destruction of the temple is at hand. Now, there's a few possibilities as to what this abomination of desolation was before the destruction of the temple. The most likely is that it describes Titus and the armies of Rome which surrounded the temple. Let me read to you from a book called Kingdom Come. The most likely identification is Titus and the armies of Rome. When the cities of Jerusalem were still burning, the soldiers brought their legionary standards into the temple precincts and they offered sacrifices there declaring Titus to be victor. The idolatrous representation of Caesar and the Roman eagle on the standards would have constituted the worst imaginable blasphemy to the Jewish people. In this particular moment, what happened was the Roman army surrounded the temple. They offered sacrifices to pagan gods. They prayed to Caesar. What Jesus is telling his friends is that when you see this horrible act of blasphemous de de desecration take place in the temple, you need to know that the birth pangs are over. It's actually about to happen, and with great haste, the devastation will take place, so get out of the city. Look what he says in verse 15. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter the house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. But alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. So when you see the abomination of desolation, don't turn back, get out of town. The temple is about to be destroyed. This leads to the second thing. Jesus then talks to his disciples about the great tribulation of those days. Look at verse 19. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord did not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. 
But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And if then anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Now, how is it possible that Jesus could describe a great tribulation as has not happened since the beginning of creation and would not happen till the end of creation? How could that be happening in the same context of Jesus saying all these things are going to take place within this generation? There's certainly been worse tribulations since the destruction of the temple. We have the Holocaust that took place. We've had World War I. We've had World War II. We've had horrific acts of violence and bloodshed. But let me point out a few things that will help us understand this text from a more biblical frame of reference to the way Jesus is speaking. The first thing I want you to understand is that Jesus' prophecy about the great tribulation of those days does not discount in any way future tribulations. Here's what we know from scripture. There will be until the return of Jesus, war and natural disaster. Creation itself, the Bible says, is groaning. And all around us, human beings are gonna build society and to certain degrees, that society will always reflect the sinfulness of human beings. Human beings will always be prone to idolatry and to violence and to using one another. And until the great day when Jesus returns, human history will always be marked with periods and cycles of profound darkness and decline, and at times, moments of grace and restoration. So Jesus, in pointing out the great tribulation of that day, is not saying it'll be the last time in history that bad things happen, because the rest of Scripture clearly teaches that until Jesus returns, the world will be jacked up. Bad things will happen. The second thing I want you to see is that the events of 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, are far more horrific and deserving of Jesus' language than we tend to understand. Josephus was a Jewish historian and an eyewitness of the destruction of Jerusalem. And he wrote a 200-page account called The War of the Jews, which describes the horror of those events. Within the city, violent factions literally engaged in chaos. You had murderers and thieves banding together, and the lack of law in the city was astounding. At one point, a group of zealots, who was a political faction, the zealots tortured and killed 12,000 of the city's noble people in one day. It was complete chaos. There was no one alive in the city during the siege that wasn't directly in fear for the loss of their life. In addition, food supplies were burned and water sources were intentionally polluted. All of the people inside the walls of Jerusalem were starving to death. People were selling children to try to buy food. There were accounts of cannibalism. Every human being alive in the city resorted to eating leather and animal dung to try to survive. And perhaps most horrifically, Accurate accounts say that Roman soldiers crucified up to 500 people per day around the walls of the city. 
So just imagine the chaos. Like, we've gone through seasons of unrest. We've had bad things happen in our city. But the kind of devastation and destruction that happened in 70 AD is hard for us to wrap our minds around. In fact, reliable estimates point out that everyone in the city was either sold into slavery or killed. 100,000 people were enslaved, and 1.1 million people were slaughtered in the siege of Jerusalem. So when Jesus describes the tribulation with massive language, what happened in those days with intense language, he's pointing out just how horrific it would be. Thirdly, now this is really important, thirdly, Jesus is using familiar Old Testament language when he says, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Okay, listen, that is not language that's primarily concerned with scientific measurements. It's language that's concerned with prophetic clarity. And when Jesus talks about the tribulation being that intense and there not being anything like it before or anything like it after, he's simply speaking like the Old Testament prophets did when they described moments of profound judgment. Let me give you just a couple of examples about things that happened before the destruction of the temple. In Joel chapter two, the prophet writes, a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and thick darkness as the dawn is spread over the mountains so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it nor will there be anything like it after, uh, again after it to the years of many generations. It's the same type language. It's not that the prophet's trying to give you an exact scientific estimate. He's describing with poetic, prophetic language the intensity of that moment of judgment. Let me give you another example from Ezekiel chapter five, which describes the Babylonian captivity. God says, and because of all your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done and the like of which I will never do again. And then in Daniel chapter nine, Another moment of judgment is described like this. Thus he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us. To bring, a, to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole of heaven, there has not been anything like what was done to Jerusalem. And this is describing events that happened before 70 AD. The point being, Jesus is telling his disciples in response to their question, how will we know that this is about to happen and what will be the sign that it's about to take place? Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation." When you see an act of idolatrous, blasphemous worship that causes revulsion in your gut, know that it's about to happen and get out. Because what's about to take place in the midst of that moment is gonna be horrific. It's gonna be absolutely unimaginable in its pain and in its suffering. And this leads, number three, to the most important part of today. This is the crux. This is where the application is. This is the main thing that we need to apply today. Number three, I want you to see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Pick up with me and work hard with me here. This is so important. Look at verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. 
And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and he will gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things take place, you know that he is very near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay, track with me. I wanna be as crystal clear as I can possibly be. The last thing I wanna do is to come in to serve your congregation and your elders and lob preaching grenades that then David has to clean up next week. All right, that's like, like I don't wanna be that friend. You're welcome, I created chaos, go clean it up. So let me, be, let me be as upfront, as clear as I can possibly be. One of the absolute sure promises we have throughout the scriptures is the second coming of Jesus. The Bible teaches the second coming of Jesus. In fact, next week, I believe Dave is gonna be up to preach and he's gonna walk through some of the specific texts in the New Testament that describe the second coming of Jesus. There's a day coming, and we don't know when it will be, but there's a day coming where the trumpet will sound, Jesus will return visibly to this planet, all sin, evil, and death will be eradicated, people will see him, it will be the end of history and the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. And we believe that, and we know that, and that is important. However, even though it's been popular to assume that what we just read in Mark chapter 13 describing the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory is describing the second coming, there's actually really compelling reasons why I think that that interpretation misses the mark of the point Jesus is making here. Jesus will come again, but these particular verses is describing a different moment in redemptive history that actually should give the people of God confidence in the authority of Jesus and in the workings of Jesus in the world as we await the second coming. Let me show you just a couple of things that I think matter. First of all, just notice Jesus gives them the time reference. He says, he says all these things will take place upon this generation. David mentioned last week that it's been, it's been popular to try to argue that this generation means uh, the Jewish race in general. The problem with that is that that word in Greek that we translate that generation is used 27 times in the Gospels, and it never means race. In addition, every time that that generation is used in the Gospels, it's always referring to the people that were alive when they heard Jesus speaking. So Jesus is giving us the time reference. He's saying these things are gonna take place upon that generation. And there have been a lot of liberal scholars that have tried to use this text, assuming Jesus was describing the second coming with him coming in the clouds, and then him promising it would take place within that generation as a reason to disbelieve the Bible and disbelieve Jesus and say that Jesus was a false prophet. Okay, Jesus, in this text, isn't giving us any indication that he thinks that there's gonna be at least a 2,000-year gap between this prophecy and him coming in the clouds. Second, and even more importantly, though, I want you to notice that Jesus is, again, using Old Testament language that's lost on us, but that's super familiar to the Jewish men that he was speaking to. Look at verse 24 again. Let me try to unpack this. For in those days, after that tribulation... 
the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Okay, track with me. This is so amazing. Throughout the Old Testament, when prophets spoke of God the Father, God the Almighty, coming near to human events in history, shaping human history, bringing judgment, lifting up and tearing down, bringing deliverance, pouring out judgment on nations that would not receive him. In those moments of profound judgment where God comes near again and again and again, terrifying, collapsing universe terminology is used. The sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light and the stars falling from the heaven. And though today for us, and I'm not trying to get personal, but for those of us that have our imagination shaped more by like left behind books than the Old Testament prophets, Sometimes it's easy to just assume that when Jesus is using that kind of like cosmic wild language of the sun and the moon and the stars, he has to be talking about the second coming. The problem being all over the Old Testament, that's language that describes moments in history where God moves. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Isaiah chapter 13 describes the judgment of God on Babylon. Here's what it says. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light the sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Let me give you another example from Ezekiel that describes the destruction of Egypt. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and I will make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light and all the bright lights of the heavens I will make dark over you. And I will put darkness over your land, declares the Lord God, when I make the land of Egypt desolate. And when the land is desolate of all that fills it, when I strike down those who dwell in it, then they will know that I am the Lord. Okay, like we could do this all day. There's this pattern throughout the Old Testament of describing moments in history where God draws near and shapes human history in moments of sometimes judgment and sometimes profound rescue that to, to describe God's glory and his power this kind of like wild cosmic language is used to describe it. Now track with me. Let's go back to the beginning of this journey together through the gospel of Mark. What's the one thing that Mark has been obsessed with throughout this entire gospel? What's the thing that he's tried to point to and argue for and show evidence of throughout the entire recounting of the teaching and life of Jesus? Mark's obsession has been to show us that Jesus is not just another rabbi, He's not just another prophet. He's not just another good man or a good teacher. He's gone to great lengths to show us that Jesus is nothing less than the son of God, God's own king, God in the flesh. And now, now in this text, Jesus is using language that was used to describe glory and power and dominion and rule in Daniel for himself. Let me, let me show you. Take your Bible or just look at the screen if you're not fast on the draw. I'm, I'm not fast on the draw. Digital Bibles have caused me to forget where the books of the Bible are. That's a confession. I hate when I have a hard copy Bible and somebody asks me for a reference and I'm like going to the table of contents as a pastor. <laughs> it, it causes deep, deep shame and humiliation. Okay, let me, let me read this to you. This is Daniel chapter seven. Listen to this prophecy 
This is what Jesus is claiming for himself in this moment. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Jesus' favorite title for himself was son of man. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Okay, just think with me for a second. If you've been around the things of the New Testament for a while, if you're new to it, you're not going to know this, and that's okay, you shouldn't. But if you've been around the things of the New Testament for a while, when in redemptive history did the son of man come to the ancient of days? Is that more like a second coming reference, or is that more a resurrection and glorification reference? What happens in Acts when Jesus ascends with the clouds back to the Father? Okay, look, look what happens next. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given what? Dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Let me sum it up by reading from R.T. French, a brilliant scholar who wrote a book called Jesus in the Old Testament. Here's how he puts it. Jesus is using Daniel chapter seven as a prediction of that authority which he exercised when in 70 AD, the Jewish nation and its leaders who had condemned him were overthrown. And Jesus was vindicated as the recipient of all power from the ancient of days. Jesus exalted after his death and resurrection to receive his everlasting dominion will display it within the generation by an act of judgment on the nation and capital of the authorities who presumed to judge him. Then they will see for themselves that their time of power has finished and it is to him that God has given all power in heaven and on earth. Hey, Jesus will return. He will return, and if you're alive, and if I'm alive then, we'll see him. It'll be a moment of cosmic, universe-changing power. But what Jesus is describing in this particular text with him coming in the clouds with great power and glory is describing a new paradigm. It's using the language that the old covenant prophets used to refer to God the Father moving in history to now describe the movement of his son, Jesus, moving in history. It's a moment where what they're gonna experience, though cataclysmic and terrifying, is not an evidence that the world is subjected to chaos and there's no hope. It's an evidence that there's a king who rules and he rules wisely even when we don't understand it. That he's been glorified, that he's at the right hand of the Father, that there's no name above his name, there's no power more mighty than him, there's no principality, there's no king, there's no government, there's no elected official, there's no oligarch, there's no no one and no nothing that can touch his rule and majesty. And the very same Jesus that was humiliated, the very same Jesus who was subjected to poverty and to pain and to torture and to shame and to death, is the very same Jesus that has now been resurrected and glorified and who is at work from the right hand of the Father to move in human history. And this means, this means that the people of God should not have weird, 
triumphant expectations that things are always gonna be easy or things are always gonna be great. We, we have been promised by Jesus that until he returns, there'll be persecution, there'll be difficulty, we'll be rejected. But what we should have unbelievable and unshakable confidence in is that there is literally nothing that can ever happen that will threaten the reign of Jesus, the rule of Jesus, or his intention to bend history to his desired end. This means a couple of things as we close. One, it means Jesus is the temple that destroys temples. The temple in the first century was built by Herod, for goodness sake. It was then, by the time Jesus shows up, a monument to human strength and human glory and power and wealth. And Jesus shows up and he says, hey, within this generation, I'm going to remove every stone from on top of one another. This is going to be over. That's really important because it had a fulfillment in 70 AD, but track with me. It also sets a paradigm for what he's doing throughout history and what he will do at the second coming. Jesus is dismantling temples to human glory. He's dismantling the worship of false gods. And if that's the project that he's engaging in, to be his people is to actually get busy dismantling our temples before he has to do it. (laughs) Scripture says in Hebrews that everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that that which cannot be shaken will remain. Meaning like we don't worship by sacrificing animals in a brick and mortar temple, but you know what we do? We build temples to marriage and family thinking that that's the source of our joy and our comfort and our security and our future. We build temples to comfort. We build temples to power. We build temples to career. By the way, marriage, family, career, these are all good things. But when we start living as if, these are the things that we were created ultimately for. The things that name us, the source of our identity, the source of our joy, we're in the business of building temples. And Jesus is in the business of tearing down temples. We can build temples to just our own autonomy and authority as human beings that pretend as if we were God, that I'm where the buck stops. Jesus is in the business of tearing down those temples and reminding us that the only thing that can't be shaken is his kingdom and his people are invited to live in that kingdom as we await the great day when he returns in light of the fact that he's already come once (laughs) and his power and his dominion will not end. It also means, before I pray for you, it also means that the very same Jesus who promised to come in judgment in ways that we're not really comfortable thinking of Jesus coming in this text first came in humility to be judged. This is really important. Because the very same Jesus that talks about coming in judgment and the sun being darkened and the stars falling from the heavens, the same Jesus that uses that collapsing universe terminology to describe that moment of judgment is the same Jesus that bore all judgment on himself on the cross and the sun was literally darkened. Like, just let that sink in. Because he doesn't come in judgment without first making it possible for anybody to receive the fact that he already bore their judgment. He was condemned, he was cut off. He carried all of our sin on himself. He bore all the wrath that we deserve. The sun was darkened in the greatest act of judgment that will ever take place in all the universe when Jesus, the son of God, bore the judgment for humanity that would receive him. And yes, 
He comes in history to judge at times. And yes, he will come ultimately and finally on the great day and there will be a final judgment. But let's not forget that the one that has the wisdom to carry out those judgments is the one that has the compassion and the mercy to be judged first so that we could pass out from that judgment. And the message of Jesus that we preach to the nations is that. It's that he died before he was glorified and that anyone that would receive him, anybody that would kiss the son doesn't have to perish. So Father, I I just pray that you would form us and shape us and that you would help us to be the kind of people that patiently and prayerfully long for the second coming, but help us to also be people that resiliently and courageously live in light of the first coming. God, it's hard for us to know how to navigate history in the present, so help us to be truly Christian with a past that's marked by you and a future that's marked by you so that in the present, whatever comes and whatever challenges we face, we can be people of faith and people of peace and people of love. Pray today that you would feed us as we come to this meal nourish us, lift us. Jesus, we love you. We declare you are Lord and there's no name that's above your name. And even though the nations rage, even though powers and principalities try to devour and destroy, we confess today with great confidence that you have received all dominion and all authority in history is under your hands and moving towards your desired end. Pray all this in the name of Jesus, amen.